Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode is sponsored by Isle of Man TT3 Ride on the Edge. The game is available on Xbox, PlayStation, Nintendo Switch, and Steam. Now, you're never going to catch me riding the Isle of Man TT, although I cannot stop playing this game. If you would like to do the same, go check out the link in the description below. Now, kick back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Hello, and welcome to episode 19 of Pushing the Limit podcast with me, Danny Bucken. Have an X-Racing legend. Legend. <laughs> legend. I couldn't get my knee down on the grass, and my dad said, we need to go to a go-kart track, and you'll get your knee down. I couldn't understand the physics of why that would make any difference <laughs> yeah, whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't understand the grass wasn't grippy. <laughs> your mum and dad were quite harsh with... Well, not harsh. They made you focus on school, didn't they? Which was yeah. always... An important I think thing. blackmail is the word. Like, that was our life. Motorbikes were just part normal. of growing up. It was just normal. So it wasn't like, oh, let's go get a bike. It was, bikes were always there. So I can't remember, obviously I was four at the time. I can't really remember how it happened. Whether I just crashed or my dad crashed into me, I can't remember, to stop me. And I went down that hill on my face. And oh, I, like, no way. My, face. my mom went ballistic. That was a big crash, Tarrant had. That was a big crash. Big <laughs> crash for a little guy. Yeah. He has single-handedly moved the barriers back at most tracks in the UK. <laughs> Like last year was the first year in my life for about 15 years where I haven't gone to a hospital. Sometimes people get my name confused as Neil McKenzie's son when it's actually Tara McKenzie's That's brother brilliant. Now. Boom, boom, Danny, what a ride this is, Hello and welcome to episode 19 of Pushing the Limit podcast with me, Danny Bucken. Have... An ex-racing legend. Legend. <laughs> legend. Mate, you've done some winning. Well, how would I introduce you now? YouTube star, team manager. Oh, just Taylor Danny McKenzie. Danny Buckins' mate. Danny Buckins' mate. Yeah, no, welcome, mate. Welcome to London. Scared the absolute life out of me. We're probably going to see that somewhere, aren't we? Yeah, I'm walking through London with a PlayStation 5 on my back. Bit of a random <laughs> thing to be doing. And then I get at, like, it felt like I was being jumped. I acted quite well, didn't I? I was you quite did. calm. You started it out. Imagine if I actually just got you in a headlock and like... <laughs> yeah. That would never have happened. No, imagine. Imagine, is what I'm saying. <laughs> anyway, we're not here to I'd have ridden about... you into battle like sea biscuit. <laughs> Are you comfortable? No, I'm not. I'm hot. I'm bothered. You're Taylor. I don't know what's going on, but the if Feng you... Shui in here is off. <laughs> we're laughing because literally for the last 15 minutes, he's been faffing about his chair. I'm still not comfortable. So let's just roll with it, mate. It if you're not comfortable. A funny angle. 
Right, I'm ready. Right, that's it. Take a deep breath and we'll just get into it. We're here because of, we've obviously had your brother, had your dad. It was only right to get you on anyway. He was on the list. He was actually trying to get you locked locked in for an episode. It was really difficult because mm. obviously your team manager duties now. You're here, there and everywhere, aren't you? You're a bit of a jet setter. Don't want to talk about that yet. Okay. I want to talk about when you first got into motorbike racing. Yeah. How the hell did it start? Okay, so weirdly... Well, I don't know if it's weirdly or not. My dad obviously raced. And when we were growing up, we were just surrounded by bikes from three months old. I was traveling around MotoGP in a motorhome. That's where I grew up. It's a sick place to grow up, to be fair. Yeah, it was cool. So that was sort of my life from when I was a very early age. Then when I was like four and five, got into pretty much every other sport other than motorbike racing. We used to play football, tennis, cricket, hockey, rugby, like pretty much did everything. We did ride motorbikes, but it was kind of just like there was bikes there and we never really took it that seriously. Then when I was about 13 or 14, we had a mini moto and I don't know why, one summer we just started riding it in the back garden and I was determined to get my knee down on it on the grass. And I couldn't get my knee down on the grass and my dad said, we need to go to a go-kart track and you'll get your knee yeah. down. I couldn't understand the physics of why that would make any difference <laughs> yeah, whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't understand the grass wasn't grippy. <laughs> so we went to a go-kart track just to purely get my knee down and successfully succeeded first time. And that was pretty much the only reason... Successfully. Just in case anyone doesn't know, Danny Buchan has a tattoo <laughs> on his arm that says success and it's meant to say success. I feel like the podcast needs to know. He's also got another tattoo on the back of his arm that says Buchan because he was 18 and bad. Do you want to get a on that? Do you want to get a zoom on that? We'll King get, Buchan. We'll get, get that crown in there. King's coronation. He was just a little bit early. King's get the sock S in. <laughs> the sock S is in here. Look, I'll flex the bicep if you want. Get the zoom on that. They did go mad for that back in the day. <laughs> they 2014. Did. Everyone went mad for yeah. that. It was crazy. Anyway. Anyway. So you successfully went and... Successfully got my knee down. Yeah. So we... That was pretty much it. That was the only reason we went. I thought, oh, we'll go back next week. Long story short, then went and did a Minimoto race. And it was the first sport that I did that was actually probably naturally better at than other sports. I, I played sports, I really enjoyed playing sports, but my first mini moto race, I finished third, I think. Then we went and did another one and I won that. And that was kind of it. I think with sports, you kind of have to, there has to be a little bit of it's challenging for you, but you have to have success to make you want to go do it and challenge yourself more. Whereas other sports were just like rugby, I was just getting flattened every week. Yeah, <laughs> Football wasn't quite fast enough or strong enough. And so that was where motorbike racing came in. That's mad though, isn't it? It's like almost like your dad and your mum were just trying to keep you away from bikes for that like period of time from when you was like five to you was 13. They're like, no, 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 I'm not doing bike my racing. My mum, definitely. I mean, my mum, my whole way through my career was still trying to stop me racing bikes. <laughs> if like 25, she's like, you could be a doctor, will not you? Yeah, I, you could have been like like You're quite, yeah, you're a smart guy. Because I remember, I remember saying to your brother as well, your mum and dad were quite harsh with, well, not harsh, they made you focus on school, didn't they? Which was yeah. always an important thing. blackmail is the word. Blackmail, yeah. Blackmail. I never was. I was the sort of like, teachers used to say, oh yeah, I'm going to tell your dad to take your bike off you. And I was like, that's never going to happen. Yeah, see, that... They should have gone through with it. My mum and dad used to... Well, not so much my dad, more my mum. She'll hate me for saying this, but it's true. She would be <laughs> like, if you don't stick in at school, you're not going racing. Or if you don't revise your GCSEs, you're not going racing. And it worked because I got six A stars and six A's in my GCSEs. She scared me that time. We'll talk about that story later, but okay. not yet. But yeah, that's quite mad, isn't it? And obviously growing up around bikes, you'd think naturally you'd just be like, yep, yeah, give me a bike. Like, I think, yeah, it was, I think there was no kind of novelty for it, uh, for motorbikes, because it was just like, that was our life. Motorbikes were just part normal. of growing up. It was just normal. So it wasn't like, oh, let's go get a bike. It was, bikes were always there. So I think what my dad did, I don't know if he did it intentionally or not. He always gave us bikes. So we always rode. So we always sort of naturally acquired the skills in the background anyway. 
even though we didn't go racing every weekend, we were still riding bikes, we rode motocross bikes and mini motos and trials bikes. So we're still, although we didn't race until we were, well, till I was later on 13, 14, it kind of, we we weren't really starting from scratch when we started at 14. And you had the love for it. Yeah, and, and we did. And I think in a way, playing all the other sports helped me in motorbike racing because I really enjoyed fitness and training and all that side of it as well. And the sort of discipline and stuff you learn from doing other sports when we transferred to motorbikes, it, it definitely helped. Yeah, because you need that, especially, I never did, when I used to race motocross, I never did anything physical. I obviously went riding like as many times a week as I possibly could and had a track eventually. But it was like, that's what kept me fit. And I never even looked at a gym until I was like 16, as you could probably have told. <laughs> you got to put in a picture of you now at 16. <laughs> Danny was... I was a unit. Strong. Yeah. You were well built. I was, I just, yeah, I mean, some might say a little bit of puffy fat, but I don't know. It's you definitely, were strong. Yeah, I was strong. You're manhandling that KX65. Yeah, I was, I was a big old unit. Yeah. But it is, it is fun. When did, you dad, when did your dad retire? How old was you when you, could you like vividly remember going racing and being like part of it? Like obviously the picture of you sat on the boost, the Cadbury's boost bike. I vaguely, I have, my earliest memories are all from racetracks. One is at Brands Hatch. My dad's, I used to have this little push bike and he cable tied the front brake lever <coughs> closer to me so I could pull the front brake and he put the, um, that day he put the seat up and he thought, oh, he's big enough now he can reach the front brake, I'll take the cable tie off the brake. I don't know why he decided to test that at the top of the paddock at Brands Hatch. Yeah. So I set off at the top of this paddock and basically careered down that hill with no brakes, couldn't touch the floor because <laughs> I put the seat up and he was riding next to me on a scooter. I can't remember, obviously I was four at the time, I can't really remember how it happened, whether I just crashed or my dad crashed into me, I can't remember, to stop me. And I went down that hill on my face. And oh, like, no way. My mum went ballistic. I bet, yeah. So that was one of my earliest memories. The second one was um, Neil Hodgson and Chris Walker when they had their famous uh, championship battle. It all came down to Donington Park. I can remember being sat in pit lane watching that. Yeah, when Chris's bike blew up and Neil Hodgson won the championship. So they're yeah. sort of my earliest memories as British Superbikes. That's mad, isn't it? Yeah, Chris, Chris was really upset, weren't he? Because he yeah. lost it that... Because, yeah, he, did he, was it at the... Did he, at like, Donington Park. Was it at Goddard's or uh, I don't know if it was going to. I don't into know why I've got that. Oh, I must. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah, I've got that in my head. I mean, I don't know. I was five. Yeah, six, seven, <laughs> yeah. I don't remember. know what parents they are. <laughs> that is mad, though. It's you actually was going to that circuit for that amount of time, isn't it? Yeah. And then you ended up obviously having a. You had a successful career. I don't care what you say. You still won stock championship. It's not easy, was it? All the all the best people win the stock. And then what about? Now. Yeah, exactly. Done two of them. Tick. Oh, just going to chuck <laughs> that in there now. I ain't won much much else. <laughs> but then, so when you went for mini motors, obviously, because you were small, weren't you? And, yeah. and obviously, you and Taron were both quite small weren't you obviously you had a bit of a growth spurt and Taron hasn't yet no I'm six foot yeah Taron needs to stop smoking mate I know a terrible day, habit he's on the blue rise vapes at the minute can't stop it <laughs> that's stunting your growth Taron yeah. isn't it and then so you went to I my earliest memory, memory of you was I'm sure it was you at uh, Donington that cold that cold snowy Donington but I'm sure oh, yeah. that was you and your brother was racing as well there yeah, when it I snowed whilst we were racing. Remember, and yeah. it was Bemsy, and yeah. they, they held us in the garage before. Do you remember you had to go through the garage to get to, yeah. the, to the grid? And it was, I remember it actually, actually snowing, and we had no tyre warmers on, did we, for so long? Yeah, the I do, I still have timesheets with your name on. Because Did you race 400s when you were... Yeah, yeah. 400s when I was 15, yeah. yeah. So I went from the Aprilias, and then I needed something that could carry the extra ballast I had around <laughs> the circuit. And when I was old enough, I did the 400, which was a mega bike. Yeah. Um, and then, obviously, then went 600s. But, yeah, it's uh, it's weird, isn't it? But I remember you on the 125 Aprilia. They were such a big bike, weren't they? 
If so, not for me. It's good not for you. It's good now that kids have ovales and little bikes yeah. they can ride because that was one thing we struggled with. We, it was almost easier. It was a, quite a backwards route. You go from mini moto racing to racing in super teens on massive giant. They're road. They're one two fives, but they're built for adults to yeah. ride, not kids to work. Yeah, commuter bikes. Exactly. So then a kid gets on it, races it, but then you had to go from that to the GP one two five, which was smaller again. Yeah. So really, we could have just done with missing that step out, especially Taz. He, we dad used to hold him at the back of the grid to go. Yeah. And stuff like that. So yeah. Because that obviously, like the, the the MotoGP route is straight to Spain, isn't it? And you're probably seeing this more now, being that you're managing the Moto3 team. Yeah. It's like like the route. Yeah. It's like a bit of a strange way. Even like the little 400 things they got now, and that is good for racecraft, but I don't see it being good teacher for motorbike. No. Like in terms of actual racing a proper bike, I don't know. If, That's my opinion. Yeah. Right. I think now, <clears throat> being around it, if you want to make it MotoGP, <laughs> you've got to move to Spain as a child, basically, and ride there. When, well, you'll have seen it when you go to Cartagena and you ride. There's kids riding there on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursday nights, after school. It's mega. Yeah. And we just don't do that in the UK. Not necessarily anyone's fault. The, the weather over the winter means you can't. It's always raining outside. You can't go ride. There's not the tracks or the facilities to do it. So moving to Spain, these kids now, you look at... I hear it a lot in MotoGP. They're like, oh, the, this rookie and this rookie. I'm like, Pedro Acosta has been riding forever. Like yeah. He's done so many. He's done thousands of kilometers on these tracks. And although they're rookies and they're, they're young, they're not rookies at all. They've been riding a lot. And yeah, I think that's the difference in why there's so many good Spanish and good Italians that come through because they keep, they just keep producing them on this uh, treadmill-like sausage yeah. factory of motorbikes. <laughs> right. And that's what was interesting the other day. I heard Keenan Safoglu talk about Top Rack and he was like, Top Rack's not built for, we've not built him for MotoGP. We've built him and pushed his career to be a successful world superbike rider and yeah. hopefully he can stay here for like 10 years or more. And I was like, wow, that's like, I actually thought, always thought to myself, it's like MotoGP is just a motorbike, like surely you can just get on it and ride it. But then when you actually look at the differences now between MotoGP and world superbike, they are so different and it's like, the guys like Bagnaia, Fabio, all the top guys now have literally come through the ranks, haven't they? And it's like, even Jake saying to me, like, <coughs> he was like, bloody hell, um, like, all the mistakes I'm making now, these guys have done it in Moto3. Yeah. And then they get to Moto2 and then they've done it already. And it's like, it's, yeah. And not just Moto3, they've been in Junior World Championship before that, riding in Spain, riding on good tracks. We'd, we grow up racing around Mallory Park and not that there's anything wrong with Mallory Park but it's not a Grand Prix but we're built track. for superbikes aren't exactly, we and then yeah. like world superbikes and it's yeah, is, yeah it, it does yeah it does astound me actually now and then the the more as the, as the years go on you start to understand right these people from this paddock aren't going to that paddock like yeah gone I think are the years now of where MotoGP riders or world superbike riders will go back like I mean for Moto2 to come like Vieje people like that Laquona to come to world superbikes I think that's always a thing that's going to happen but to go the other way I don't think it's going to happen much anymore no. like, I think if you're in that championship like GP obviously like you've got Scott Ogden and you've got Jake and a few of the other Brits hopefully they get that sort of route to GP but like imagine being a BSB rider and then thinking you're going to go to MotoGP it's never going to happen it doesn't it's like, for instance, Cadwell Park, if you use every single inch of the track there, at some point it will catch you out. Your well, Taz is a it good won't. example. Well, not, well, not you. Me. Don't say that to me. You do use it's every inch of the track there, I know. <laughs> the say and do it and you're do around there, Danny. That was a big crash, Tarrant had. That was a big crash. Big crash for a little guy. <laughs> yeah. He has single-handedly moved the barriers back at most tracks in the UK. <laughs> bit by bit, he's working his way around. Well, he's stopped now, thankfully. Yeah. 
thankfully stopped here. Yeah. But then, so from there, obviously you had a you had a good career and well, you had a funny career. I remember you in so many different bikes. When you went to the superbike and WD40, and I took you clean out. That, <laughs> tell that story. That was a good one. So I was just riding around WD40. I think. Was that the first round of the year? It, it was the first round, Brands Indy. Yeah, when we did so Brands Indy in 2015, I think it was. I went straight from Supersport to Superbike. I was all excited. I was young, full of energy, and just minding my own business, riding around Brands Hatch Indy, and just felt Danny Buck and upend me I out didn't of nowhere. Even, I didn't, there weren't really much of a gap. I think I might have even gone over the inside curb yeah. through Surtees. I mean, for, the right for you to get through, there needs to be a fairly sized gap mm. anyway, and you just used me like a berm, and I went down like sack of potatoes. I did feel quite bad actually I remember thinking oh shit that's my mate I've just took out there yeah. and then your team boss weren't overly amused about it. you actually looked quite quite amused you actually like you was laughing which was quite funny <laughs> well you were my mate <laughs> your, team you? mate so, your team boss yeah. was fuming because he smashed his bike up <laughs> that was just a start as well that was of that year that was the year, year you hit the famous um, flamethrower bike yes that bike blew up did you actually just get a hot bum and then just be like it was a weird thing because the the frame on that Kawasaki used to get really hot all the time so you'd be riding it and your legs were always warm anyway. So it had, the engine had broke and I was riding back to the, like I was riding on the bike, even though it was broke, to come back in because I didn't know what happened. And I came when through that. broke, how did you know it was broke, sorry? Well, just making it was just misfiring. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So I was coming back. I actually thought it was something to do with the fuel or something because it felt like it was misfiring. <laughs> I went through that left hand and I was like, God, this bike's hot. And then I thought, it feels too hot. And then I looked down and I was thinking that looks like a flame and I saw this flame come out the side of my leg and then I looked up and as I looked up like that a flame came out the front of the airbox oh and I was wow like, oh my god I'm my on balls fire. are on fire <laughs> <laughs> but at that point that your brain it's just weird I guess your instincts just kick in I was thinking I'm on fire but I'm not burning and then I'm thinking it would hurt more right now to jump off this slow it down slow it down mile an hour. so I got to the grass and sort of slowed down and it looks like I planned to get to the grass and jump off elegantly as I got to the grass but what actually happened was I got to the grass and you know, if someone got a lighter and put it under your skin, you would like yeah. go like that. That pretty much is what happened. So I got to the grass and I felt like that, but on my whole leg. And I just jumped <laughs> and I got off the back of it, luckily. Um, but it had melted through my boots. So my, I was honestly about two or three seconds away from melting uh, actually, my foot. Yeah. So my boot, where the plastic um, piece on your toe is, had melted up. So the boot had like opened from the fire. And then my, I just remember thinking, oh, I'm so hot and I couldn't get my boot off fast enough. I got it off and I'm like stood on TV jumping up and down because my <laughs> foot was like on fire. And it melted all the, the stretch panel on the inside of my leg. But luckily got away with the whole thing. So Yeah, another few seconds. Like you said, you could have melted that inside because obviously the inside is like a fabric, isn't it? That yeah. could have actually stuck. Once that burnt starts yeah, getting bad. to your skin. Oh. There's a an American racer called PJ Jacobson that used mm. to race in British Superbikes. And he's had the same thing, but it happened to him at the end of the straight. And I know the exact feeling he must have had because you, your brain, it's hard to jump off a bike. You, when you I lost the brake, it was the same. Yeah. Genuinely. You have to, there's a split second where you don't just jump off straight no, away. You think? Yeah. And I think he's had that same thing, but he was on fire and he couldn't get off and he had third degree burns <sighs> with his legs and stuff. So... Yeah, that is funny. Let's, yeah, the instinctive side of things, like you're literally your instincts are to hold on to this bike no matter what happens. Yeah. Obviously, if you crash, you decide to let go. But your instincts are like hold on, hold on. And when I had that crash in uh, Monte Blanco, 183 mile an hour, no brake. I um literally was like one, two, and I went for a two third as if to that. say, yeah, come on, there must yeah. be, it must come back. And I remember just thinking, like it took me a good 
two seconds to go, right, I've got to get off and just let go. And it was the worst feeling, isn't it? So I know, like, even yeah. if you're burning, you're like, no, I could probably save this. I'll probably get it to the side and get off this. I had and the then... same thing at Brands Hatch. I had no brakes at the end of the back straight. Uh, oh. Two pumps. A bit... Two pump jump, they call it. Yeah. Oh, savage. Are we still talking about racing? Yeah. Okay. Move on. Are you right there? You two do... pumps and jump. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, one pump and jump for me in that one. <laughs> but yeah, we'll... Um, no, it's not... That's, yeah, no. You, you've, yeah, you've, no brakes is the... Yeah, that, yeah that's I've the got worst. to the end of the back yeah. straight. You pull the brake and your brain goes, we've got no brakes. And then one, I pull the back brake and that just does nothing when no. you're doing 160 miles an hour. And then I turned in and tried to make myself crash. But I couldn't... I'm like turning in, trying to make it crash and I couldn't get off. And then I eventually just fell off the side. I don't even know if it's effective, the rear brake at that speed. It's not. Does it not? Does no. it not even, it doesn't well, even start to skid. Well, I tried it. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't no. even start to skid, no. does it? And then you're like, right, where am I aiming the bike? Right, I'm aiming the bike that way. Get off it. Yeah. It's clear. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? They actually, there was a test they did with like uh, John McGuinness about reaction times. You probably know more about it than me. I, I don't know much about it, but they were saying like the way that the, the brain works for guys like obviously us or probably more so the guys that do a TT, the, how quickly it takes them to make a decision. And the actual time was so much quicker than... And like if say you had a normal job like sat in an office it yeah. was like ridiculously amount really? like yeah how much quicker and I think yeah like I have that situation I say to Steph like don't worry if I get into a situation my brain reacts much quicker I actually say I'm not going to crash this car that's what I say it's really <laughs> bad <isn't> it? <laughs> I'm laughing because it's so true and she's going to be like he says it all the time I'm not going to crash this car as soon as something happens I'll react I'm yeah. just chilled about it not that I drive around like Ooh, I'm not going to crash yeah. but um these could be my last words. This could be my last podcast. I could have really like put bad luck into myself. But anyway, you spoke it into the universe. Yeah. But anyway, let's talk about your racing. I don't want to talk about me crashing cars. It's no good. <laughs> if you had three last words to say, what would your last three words be? Fuck this shit. <laughs> no, I don't know. Oh, I don't Mine's know. live, laugh, love. Is it? That's, have you got that tattooed on you? <laughs> you can do that, don't you? <laughs> that, yeah. Go on. Where are you going to get it put? <laughs> live, laugh, love. Yeah. It's where are you going to get put on your shoulder or your collarbone? I'll get a sleeve or something. You've got a sleeve. Oh, I no, know, I've probably got like that. I've got... Do you know what, what I think? You know? No, but I know, but they, they tell a story. So in <laughs> all, all yeah. tattoos, they Being tell a story. and drunk. <laughs> this one tells the story of, I was thinking I was a bad man at the time and I used to drive my right hand up on the steering wheel and Merc. people knew who was going past How in that How cool did we think we were back the in the Merc, day? The Merc, mate. The Merc. Merc. Yeah, it's banging. And this one was a hard time in Stock 600 career. <laughs> Success is the ability to move between failures with enthusiasm, but the tattoo was unsuccessful. <laughs> unsuccessful. But anyway, yes. that was a tough time. Yeah. The 83 was, no matter what number I am on the bike, I'll always have 83. Yeah. And then this one here, me and Steph got matching tattoos. That's cute. Yeah. And I, she said to me, come on, let's get a tattoo. And I was like, oh, re like, really? And she was like, are you really having commitment issues over a tattoo? I was like, we're already committed. Like, we're already pretty committed. We've got two kids. We're married. We've got a house together. Yeah. So in the end, I just did it. And yeah, we have a bit of a laugh and about what it, is it in the house. That's um, our anniversary. We're our no. anniversary, yeah. Nice. Which is next week. Good. Five years married, mate. Can you believe it? 30 no, years old. I cannot. We are anyway, podcast listeners do not want to listen about my marriage dates. <laughs> <laughs> my shit tattoos. Let's talk about... So you obviously went from the WD-40. Then you went back to Supersport, didn't you? Was that the Tyco year? 2013, 14, I rode Supersport. Then I moved to Superbike with WD40, and then I moved back to Stock Thousand. But it was just like people. I don't. People probably understand more now. But the emotional roller coaster of seasons is like it's so demoralising when you have a bad season. But it's the best feeling in the world when you have a good season, isn't it? Yeah. And it's such a and the good outweighs the bad so much that you just forget the bad. Yeah. Even though the bad is absolutely terrible, isn't it? It's, I've pretty much went from 
2010, I rode 125s and did a bit of winning. It was a good year. And then I moved up to Grand Prix. My second Grand Prix was good. And then from that Grand Prix, pretty much, I, in my mind, had it tough or it, it felt like it was tough from 2011, 2012, 13, 14, 15. So for all those seasons, I only had one podium in 2014. I finished second in one race. And then 2015 was just a complete disaster. I think I broke down about, I've written it down somewhere, it's like 28 times during the year the bike broke. So that was just a complete disaster. And I got to the end of that season and I just really thought, I don't know why I'm doing this. Like I spend all my life, I dedicate my whole life to doing this. I don't see my friends. I don't um, really drink. We're training from, like, all the time. Train nonstop. Commit your whole life to doing mm. it. And I always used to think like if I committed myself so much to something else, then maybe I'd, it would be okay. But then, so 2016, I told myself that I would, in the winter, I said to my dad, I'm going to have one last shot at doing this. I don't feel like I've had a proper opportunity to yeah. show what I could do. So let's just make sure that I get on a bike that's capable of winning. And I'll prove to myself whether I can do it or I can't do it. And if I can't do it, that's fine. I'll just stop and do something else. Um, but then 2016, I won the championship. So it was like, proved to myself that I was capable of doing it. Yeah, done it. And was that with the Bayfams guys? That was with Bill Bates. With Steve Bill Bates. Oh yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. And then you, that Bill, the Bayfams come after. But when you're like, when you say that you've, you're riding MotoGP, what, how old were you when you were doing the GPs? So I did my GCSEs when I was 16 and 17. Then when I turned 18, I was doing my A-levels. And um, yeah, went. And you're traveling. traveling around the world. Is so what I'm saying. Like, it's like, it's so demoralizing going around the world. Yeah. You've got all this traveling. You leave on some tracks for a Tuesday and arrive at the circuit on a Wednesday. And well, then you're there Thursday, yeah. Friday, well, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, like for one race. I went to Japan, flew all the way to Japan, uh, <coughs> got to the race. That was an equally bad year bike broke down and I don't know how many times but it was a lot and the got back on a Monday and my mates were like oh how did the weekend go in Japan and I'd be like uh, I just broke down and they went you flew all the way to Japan to break down I was like yeah so and they're the sort of I think all you don't realize at the time but all of that is like grinding you down and you've just got to keep fighting against that and fighting against that constant so, yeah, yeah and it's like what oh so you had a bad weekend yeah I did yeah what happened oh I had a technical problem oh all right yeah like it's not that it's, it's the so frustrating. three weeks of training before that well not oh. just three weeks years of training before yeah, that yeah to get there and and that happens so and then you're literally traveling around the world you're not home like thing with BSB is you have a bad weekend like I had a bad weekend at Donington and then Sunday night I'm home and it's yeah. like I'm home I'm back to normal Monday start again right. Let's look at Knock Hill now. But when you're around the world, like obviously speaking to Jake about the travel schedule, it's mental, isn't it? Like, yeah. you do so much traveling, it's such a commitment. And now, well, like now I don't race. Even last year for me, just traveling alone. Yeah. I, I don't feel sorry is not the right word, but I sympathize, empathize with the people that are doing it. MotoGP is so much harder than British Superbikes is hard, and you have three races a week and it's difficult. But MotoGP, just to travel, for 21 races you just feel like you're in a washing machine you go from one time zone to the next you have no idea where you are on your iphone you can you know it shows you how much sleep you get yeah. so i normally get like seven eight hours sleep at points last year my average sleep was going to four or five hours because you're just <sighs> constantly and that in itself just grinds you down and so now they've like doubled the races emoji yeah I've, like it looks like sometimes they're whinging about it but i'm the ones who say oh we love racing we do love it and everyone does love racing but 
it's not easy to chuck another race in there race weekend. Yeah, like for me as a pundit, I absolutely love the sprint race. Me I think too, it's, it's the best thing mega. ever. But I think, yeah, I think maybe what they should have done is not have done 20 rounds this year, maybe cut the rounds down. Yeah. Because like you say, the riders will get burnt out. Like not only do they not get much of an off season anyway with the fact that their season stops in November, isn't it? It's yeah. Like, so then they've got December, then they start testing like pretty much end of January. It's like the guys don't get a bloody rest today. And yeah. we were talking about the training side of things the other day, weren't we? And it's like they don't train, they don't get time to train. No. Like it's that's the difference. Like British Superbikes, you finish in October, October, November, December. Even if you do train, you're just ticking over because it's yeah. too early to start a training camp for the next year. Yeah. And then you have January, February, March. You don't ride till March. At MotoGP this year, we're finishing in the third week of November. You've got December off, you have your Christmas turkey, and then you're they're back out to Malaysia, I think, is their first test. So, you know, going back to the training, we were saying how in BSB you feel like you can do big blocks of training and improve yourself. MotoGP, you just go from round to round to round and you don't really get chance. It's more about recovering than it is about actual training for the next yeah, race. Yeah, that's funny. And I remember a story about uh, when you was doing the GPs. I think you was doing the GPs at the time. Can't remember, but you um, when the ash cloud, remember the big ash cloud, you yeah. were stuck, weren't you? And your dad hired a car. Yeah, so we <laughs> in two thousand and ten. Thruxton, we was at, weren't we? Yeah, two thousand ten. Yeah, it was yeah. Thruxton. So I was testing for the Red Bull rookies, and we were coming back from Valencia to Thruxton, and we were flying back, but we went to the airport, and there was this ash cloud. So we're like, great of all things. What does this need. mean? Yeah, we just clear went, it exactly. <laughs> yeah. So. Mad Mark just got went to the hire car desk, said, we need to hire a car. They said, oh, where are you going? We're like, England. They're like, you can't take it to England. We said, well, what about France? They're like, hey, no, you can't take it to France. You can't take it out of this country. <clears throat> so like, all right, cool. Yeah, we won't. Yeah. <laughs> they took the keys. Yeah. Drove it straight to England. My dad, like, if the police are watching, Spanish police. No, don't worry about it, mate. It's too, too far gone now. And this is a story anyway. Right. So basically we averaged, it's not that impressive, but we averaged 80 mile an hour including every single stop, including everything. And we drove for, basically, we was just holding it at 120 yeah. mile an hour the whole way there. <laughs> and mm. my poor dad, we were there with Harry Stafford, who used to race. Yeah. And his dad um, thought he was committed to the cause. And then he realized he hasn't got Mad Mark's level of commitment to the yeah. cause. So he sat in the passenger seat. It was like, yeah, yeah, I'll share the driving with you. Dad got in the passenger seat, just put his foot flat to the floor. And the guy was like, uh, I, I can't drive this fast. I definitely can't drive this fast in my dock. But dad was like, you just keep me awake and I'll keep going. <laughs> so we drove, it was 22 hours straight, non-stop. The only time we stopped was literally just put fuel in yeah. and kept going. And we got there right before, I know it was FP2 or qualifying, but I qualified fourth. <laughs> so my dad gone to all that effort, got yeah. to fourth on the grid, thought, great, it was worth getting back for. Got to the race and I basically just flooded the bike on the line. I went all the way back to last. Is that when there's two strokes? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so we rushed all the way back for me to just set off last anyway. And uh, I came back through to fourth, so it was kind of, it was worth getting back for. But what yeah. happened with the car? Oh, so the car... Did you burn it out? No, that was that was up for discussion if that was going to happen. Dad, there was a guy, do you remember Hudson Kenner that used to race? Had, How can we not remember uh, the, the Hudson Hurricane Kenner, Hudson the Kenner? gangster himself. So That guy's a knob, mate. I don't <laughs> mind saying that out loud on air. I like Hudson. No, do you actually? Yeah. Oh, okay. So, He's your mate. He's yeah. a knob for me. <laughs> the, he had a South African yeah. friend and basically paid him a bag of sand to... He took it back to somewhere near Spain and just rang up and blamed the ash cloud and was like, I'm stuck because of you, I can't fly. And he dumped it at some random airport. To be fair, like, Hurricane, you've just gone up an estimation in my books now. You're at one. That was Hurricane's mate, it wasn't actually No, Hurricane. no, but he still organised it. Though. Yeah, he had to yeah. talk South African to his mate yeah. to get him sorted. 
Yeah, that guy, we've got some funny stories. That's for another day. But anyway, <laughs> that's, um, yeah, that's quite mad though. Isn't it? Oh, I love that. I have, the only sort of way I can sort of relate to that is I had to do that from Knock Hill to Gatwick last year, <laughs> <laughs> last year literally. Did you? Where yeah. were you going? I was going from, from Edinburgh to home and the flights were all messing about. I think it was an easy jet, had the people striking and all that, yeah. I don't know. And I said to the chef at the time, because I took the chef to the airport, I said, mate, uh, if this, this plane ain't going, I'm not sitting about tonight. I said, I'm driving this car home. I had this shitty Yaris thing, like Yaris Estate. Obviously, cheapest hire car I could possibly find when booking it because I'm a motorbike racer. Yeah. And uh, it's an automatic. And when I picked it up, I was like, oh, the clutch feels like it's slipping a bit on this. <laughs> and anyway, so I said, right, you can come with me or you can stay here and do a night at the, ho at the hotel. Don't bother me. I said, either way, I'm quite happy to drive on my own. But if not, come with me. He's like, all right, I'll come with you. Mate, just driving home. Got back to Gatwick like 2 a.m., parked up. I said, I'm just leaving this car here. And it, he said, you can't leave it here because they'll think it's a, like a suspect vehicle. So I literally had to abandon it next to my van, just jumped in the van and gone, yeah. But that, I literally had to pay 70 quid extra to drive it home. It was the best decision I made. Because, you know, I just wanted to get back to my bed. I didn't want to mess about. And But done two races, sweaty, hot, just got in my clothes, just driven like however many hours, eight hours back proper miserable time get home the red bulls all of a sudden kicking in when i don't need it <laughs> just to. when you want to go sleep. I know, i'm literally like this just yeah. at night <laughs> steph steph you're awake <laughs> 3am in the morning Look at hell. but anyway so we go from motorbike racing and yeah. sorry guys if i keep coughing i've got a very dry throat it's not covid all right it's the vapes you need it's to the kick vapes. It, i'm telling you it's m60 a day i keep smoking yeah people i don't know if people would actually find this funny people probably now think that taron smoke and i smoke Taz does <laughs> Can't wait for him to. to the vapes, the least of yours. The vapes. Meth you got what? Yeah. <laughs> That's terrible. Why is he so fast? That is so funny. I, is I say no to meth. Like, do you? Yeah. Yeah. I, oh yeah. I mean, well, I'll probably do as well. Probably. Um, got a couple of questions here. It's not Buck and Bonanza time yet. It's just uh, okay. a couple of random questions. Um, what is Buckins Bonanza? No, I can't tell you that. That's that's, that's carnage. Have you so ever been known staff. as the son of Neil or the brother of Taron? Have I ever been known? Yeah, has anyone said you're that brother? That's of all I'm known is as. <laughs> Sometimes people get my name confused as Neil McKenzie's son when it's actually Tara McKenzie's That's brilliant. Now. My dad's like Dan's dad, Jim. That's Do you know it. what? Dan's dad, it's Jim. That is. Turned, there's a, a turn recently. My dad got asked the other day. He, someone said, oh, are you that YouTube guy's dad? <laughs> So no, like, that is heaven he's for you read, to hear. He's raised for fifteen years. I've raised for fifteen yeah. years, and all it's come to is me being some kid on YouTube, and he's the dad of. That is quite funny, though, isn't it? Let's talk about the YouTube. So obviously, come to retire from racing, and yeah. he, you obviously had that. You had the year where you won the Superstock. Did you win two Superstock titles? Because you done the Bathams one as well. So I, I've, factually, I won one, but uh, people just get confused and think I won two, so I just sort of go with it. Go with two. I finished second in the other one. Yeah, he's close to me winning. Coops, wasn't yeah, you? came down with me and Coops, and Coops got the better of me. Yeah, that was. But they, 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 like you say, I oh, superstock, but they're still competitive years. They're still competitive bikes. You still have to put a lot of effort in to win them. Like, I yeah, I think I'm probably I. I like to think I'm a modest person, so I'll probably play down what. But I'm proud of what I achieved. Yeah, man, it's good. They're, yeah. they're not easy championships to win. Like, I know the no. ones I won. They bloody hard, and it takes a lot of effort. Yeah. The only difference when you go to superbike, I feel, is that there's more. There's nothing resting more on you as a rider. You don't have to do anything more, anything less. The only thing that that I think hinders superbike is overcomplication of the bikes yeah and then technical problems and and things like that going against you where i think when you're if you if you got on a good superbike and you had a good team i mean like a like a real understanding bunch of guys around you that understood you personally yeah because there's another thing isn't it like you can get 
people that work with people that some people say they're really good. Some people say they just don't get on. And I think that's a big thing is having the people around you that understand you. Like I'm quite lucky. Like my team now understand me and how I work, even though my feedback sometimes might be a bit vague or quite in depth, but in a different way. Yeah. And I think if you had the right people around you and you go into a season like feeling confident, then I think you can have a good year. I think 2019 when I finished second in the Superstock Championship, there was talk between me and Michael Rutter at the time of doing Superbike the next year. And I think if I'd done Superbike the next year with him, uh, really it should just be a case of you bolting slicks in your bike, making it a little bit better. And we just planned on literally making my bike a little bit better. Because mm. my lap times on my Superstock bike, if I'd just gone a bit faster everywhere, would have been good, good enough. enough to yeah. ride in Superbike. But that's racing, it just... It, if it was one easy straight path to the top, it, everyone would do it. But it's yeah, just not it's like so that. difficult, isn't it? And like, yeah. no matter like some years, you can just get on a bike and it's everything goes your way and everything like it's like, it's a really. I always say it's luck, and people say, "Oh yeah, I don't believe in luck," but I genuinely believe in luck. And sometimes you can have the easiest of years, nothing goes wrong, like everything starts to go wrong but goes right again. And then the other way where you feel like, right, I'm the most prepared, I've done the best I can. And it goes completely wrong. And I think like with running, that's what I like about running or cycling. It's like if I was going to do a, a marathon next year and I'm like, right, I've got, let's say or th this year I've got 20 weeks. I'm going to do a marathon training plan. I'm going to do this plan this week, blah, blah, blah. You know, when you stand on that line, that that is it. Unless yeah. you're ill or you don't feel obviously then that's a problem. But that is it. When you go racing, you can be the fittest. You could have done the best psychology, you could have eaten the best, you could have done everything 20 times better than the guy who's winning the races and it just go completely to shit and you end up nowhere and yeah that is something planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Isn't it that I think it makes us resilient as people for when we go on to other stuff, like you've been a team manager now. Right? Yeah. The resiliency is like embedded deep in you, isn't it? Oh, this, weirdly, since I've stopped racing... I've found that life is so easy. <laughs> it's like racing was so hard for so long. Everything I do now, just not in a big headed way, but I just absolutely love everything I do. Challenges mm. in the life outside or work outside of this just feel like absolutely nothing compared to, I think it's the, the danger element of racing, the injury. Like last year was the first year in my life for about 15 years where I haven't gone to a hospital. Hang on, didn't you go skiing and did you have... No, well that, was that uh, this year? Yeah, I didn't go to hospital for that. Oh, did you not? No. Did you go to hospital for skiing at all? No, skiing, I was sound. <laughs> what happened was a week later, I took up trials riding and dislocated my shoulder. 
but there was a 365 day period. And where you got I hospital it. for that, or did you? No, I didn't go. Hospital. No, that's me. Yeah, so I've still not gone. Double gangster. Yeah. So, but it just shows like I didn't realize until one of my ex girlfriends once said she was. We were on about me going to hospital, and she was like, "You know, I've never been to hospital." I was like, "What do you mean?" And she's like, I've "Never broke a bone." I was like, well, "How can you not have broke a bone?" And it's just like these yeah. weird things in life that we just get used to. You just it's like part of life having operations and doing that. When you take all that out of it and sacrificing your whole life and training and the dedication, it's like just applying a little bit of that to the other stuff in my life is just, it, you don't know it at the time because life, you just don't know why things happen. No. But now I get why all these things happen to me and it's just, yeah, it was all for a reason and it's worked out okay. I literally say, going back to what you said earlier about, oh, I thought if I could apply this same effort outside of life, like outside of racing, I genuinely believe, like we spoke about before as well, people that leave racing and go into business or whether they're doing property development or office furniture, whatever it might be. I think when you when you know what it takes to be a successful racer, like keeping the team G'd up around you, like talking to sponsors, all that kind of thing that you need to be a successful racer, your training, your structure, your discipline, I think when you could apply that to something outside of racing, I think like we said, you can make a success of it and it just comes at a less of a risk. Like you're yeah. not jumping off a bike at 150 mile an hour, are you? There's so many life skills that the, like motorbike racing, you think you're just riding a motorbike and the things that I've realised that apply is things like dedication and sacrifice that you don't realise you're doing without thinking mm. about it. Because in racing, you, you it's impossible to make it or do any good or become professional if you don't dedicate yourself properly. Um, the business side of it, of just understanding how money works, getting sponsorship in, getting sponsorship out, paying for stuff, that side of it all, you're sort of picking up skills the whole time. I learned Spanish alongside my racing without realising it at the yeah. time. And there's just like loads of little things that I had no idea would ever, even social media, doing your social media, that then gave me a job effectively out of the back of my racing career. Like presenting so, yourself as a person. Exactly. Like, yeah. and, and speaking to people, that's one of the biggest things I've learned or taken from racing is, a lot of my racing, I had to try and fund myself some years. So one of my things I learned how to do was um, attracting sponsors and keeping sponsors and making people enjoy my racing. And, and all that side of it now pays dividends after. But you don't realise at the time, you just, all you want to do is go and win motorbike races. And, and it's only after you can look and see what it's done. Yeah, it's mental. I actually thought about it the other day. Like if you used to write a CV as a motorbike racer and all you'd done was been a professional motorbike racer for, for 10 years, there is so many skills that you could actually write down, like even negotiating, like you're negotiating your contract yeah. if you haven't got a manager, negotiating funds with sponsors, negotiating the fact that I'm going to give you X, you're going to give me X and we're going to meet in the middle and we're going to make a good partnership. Like there's so many things that you learn that putting that into a corporate world would work a treat. The only hard thing you'd have putting a motorbike race in a corporate world is sitting behind a desk for yeah. eight hours a day, isn't it? Because yeah, obviously, like, it's a great life when you're racing bikes. Like, you're, like, you, all right, you don't get to see much when you're traveling the world, but, and you're probably enjoying it more now. But, like, you travel the world, like, you, like, Monday, like, for me, as a, when I first had mail, like, I, I was able to be home quite a lot, which was, I was so thankful for it. I was like, bloody hell, like, I can be at home and not have to worry about stuff because my income is my racing, you know, yeah. at the time. And, um, and yeah, I was so blessed to have that. But where, if I had a normal job, I'd probably have to be working nine, like most of the week. So yeah. there's so many good things of racing. There's such bad points where you just think, why, like, you dedicate yourself and it just goes so wrong or you crash and you injure yourself and you just think, like, why, why me? Re yeah, it's, and it's, it has literally driven me to absolute rock bottom at points mm. and and like 
I'm not afraid to say, in 2018, I went to doctors about my racing because, well, not about my racing, just because I felt so bad. Like depressed, like yeah. depression, yeah. And the the woman, the doctor, bless her, she went, she basically realised it was racing that was making me feel bad. She's like, oh, you just need to stop racing motorbikes. I was like, you don't understand. <laughs> I'm in yeah, 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 yeah. And that was 2018, yeah. it felt like that. And I just kept grinding and kept doing it, even though it still felt made me feel so bad. In 2021, someone else said it to me, another psychologist, like, right, I'm just going to have to listen to someone here. And, yeah. But the the perseverance to just keep going through that i was literally putting myself through torture the whole time it's weird that because i love 95 percent of racing but the bad parts of it can be really bad as well but the good overweighs the bad and that's good and that remembering standing on that top step and the, everyone around you or whatever it might be like yeah. that sort of is the it's thing that just keeps you going isn't it yeah it's but like, it is yeah that depression thing mate that's savage because i think everyone probably goes for it and now it's more spoken about isn't it like i've i've definitely been through it and was that a big deciding factor on giving up like how did you feel when obviously you made that final decision of like right yeah i'm stopping depression is weird because i was always that person that would look at someone that's depressed and think just cheer up well yeah <laughs> like, mate, go for what, it. Yeah, yeah like yeah. just man up yeah. when it gets you it's for people that haven't been through it you you won't understand i don't think you can you can maybe sympathize but i didn't understand it I'm, and it's only when i went through it i realized what it was like and you just no matter what i did i just couldn't get rid of this feeling it was just always there and then like closed off emotionally touching. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Yeah. And I'm a happy person. And I couldn't make myself happy no matter what I did. I felt bad. So yeah, I basically what happened was uh, it's a funny story. I haven't actually ever told anyone this story, but my I've got a friend that runs a gym, and he had this sort of like 300, uh, 360 body scan. It scans your body, and then there's a big questionnaire about all your life. And he said, "Oh, I'll do it as part of your racing. It might get you going." And one of the questions on the survey was, "Are you happy?" And I put no. Because I wasn't. Yeah. But no one would ever think that with me because I no matter how bad I no, felt, I'd always careful. put on yeah, the yeah. front of what I was I was happy. He put, Why have you put no? I was like, I'm not. He said, What do you mean you're not happy? I said, I don't think I am. And uh he said, Have you ever seen anyone? Because being a boy and a bloke, you just don't talk about no, it. You, you just ignore it yeah. and just especially in our racing world, it's a macho sport. You've also got to never let your guard down. You can't appear to have weakness. any weakness. Yeah, no weakness. If you firstly appear weak to your opposition, they've all beat you already. Yeah. And you can't appear to have any kind of weakness, even if it's an old injury for teams. Because if a team thinks, well, I'm not, he's depressed or yeah, he's I'm not that, why would I have him? It, yeah. So I just never let anyone in. I'll never let anyone know. And he said to me, have you ever seen someone? I was like, well, no. And long story short, I went to see this psychologist and he just explained why I felt like I did. And it was like a light bulb moment in my mind. And from that point onwards, that was a third of the way through 2021. I decided I wasn't going to race anymore, but I... Being who I was, I wasn't going to stop there and then. I was going to finish the season. Um, and yeah, so I decided quite early in that year. And I had this real huge mental battle with myself because I felt like I was giving up. And I I like worked for 15 years to get to that point. And I thought, am I really just going to walk away from doing this? And it was the same kid that my friend that um, put me on to psychologist. I went back to him and said, I think I'm going to stop racing. But I just can't get my head around the fact that like, I feel I'm going to give up. And he's like, well, it's not really giving up, is it? You've... If you think about where you've got to yourself in life so far, that's all been a process of your racing and it's maybe just the beginning of something. Yeah. And it's not giving up because you're still going to be doing stuff. Yeah, you're not going to race anymore, but if you're happy with what you've achieved, and I genuinely hand on heart can say that I'm happy with what yeah. I achieve. I feel like the one thing I can definitely say to myself is that I gave it everything and I really like that, that now I've stopped. I don't ever look back and think, God, I wish I did this or wish I did that. I know hand on heart that I, did everything I possibly could. So I'm 
I've actually feel very fortunate now I've stopped racing and I've had time to reflect that I've been able to walk away at a point when I was still doing well and can quite happily sit here going, yeah, I was a good bike racer and I stopped when I wanted to and I've not had to go because some people stop through injury or stop because yeah, they don't say. get a ride. And that I feel like a lot of people still want to race even though they can't, whereas I don't feel like that. I feel like I raced as much as I wanted to, showed everyone what I could do and that was as good as I was. Yeah, I maybe could have had more results. If I'd carried on going, I might have won more stuff, but... And I'm happy with what I've won and I'm really lucky now at 30 that I've sort of got the rest of my life ahead of me and I've still made loads of contacts, made loads of friends, made loads of opportunities and now I've sort of get to start what you would start at the end of your racing career a bit earlier and yeah. get a sort of second go at it. So it's Yeah, cool. it's mad. It's a mad thing really, isn't it? Because, yeah, like it's it's kind of like most, like how many riders do you see that are injured? Yeah. Haven't got fingers, have got their what they're limping. Like I was saying to you the other day, your dad had a very fortunate career, didn't he? I know he probably did have injuries, but when you look at him now and the success he had and he raced till he was forty, that he had a really successful career. Yeah. And like the, the ten years from when he was thirty to his forty, like he uh, he probably did have injuries, I don't know. But well, he, did, he but doesn't he just got over yeah. them all, yeah, he's fine. Yeah, and he's like he's, he's in one of shape than me. Yeah. <laughs> But he's and one Taz. of the few, yeah. Because yeah. like, Taz has had some bloody horrible injuries, hasn't yeah. he? Like last year especially, it was it was rough for him. And yeah. those are going to get him when he's older, especially yeah. with that vape. That's going to probably give him gout. In. Is that what it does? I don't know. Yeah. It's but, the meth, honestly, that you've got to watch. Oh, mate, he's hung. I tell him that. It's mm. horrible. But yeah, he's it, mad. And you sit and think to yourself, bloody hell, like sometimes, yeah, I, even then I question myself now sometimes, like what am I doing? Like this is horrendous. I've hurt myself. Like I fell off when it's not even my fault and I've smashed myself into the tarmac. But you just know you have that glimmer of hope. You're like, well, I know that I can win. And It does always get yeah. better. There's just... Yeah. I always take each year as it comes, genuinely. Like yeah. I, like... I I I feel like yeah like I just want to have that year where it's just like everything goes my way and if I don't I'm not good enough then I'm not good enough it's yeah. fine I'm happy with that but yeah it's funny but I always just um, I think yeah like being around the paddock as well is mega isn't it like obviously you're around the paddock now felt it got into the team manager role which was was that unexpected or was it kind of a bit of a when you started yeah. speaking to like um, Michael about it was it like oh well actually we're going to be putting a team together. It was so, but so when I decided I was going to stop racing, I literally had zero clue what I was going to do. I didn't have any idea. I was just, I was just going to stop racing, and I thought I'll figure something out. So there was this weird part in my life where I thought I, I used to like the, 2018. This was sort of why I carried on racing. 2018, when that doctor told me to stop, I went on, is it Monster Jobs or one of these like job yeah, sites? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I looked down all the jobs, and I was like, oh my god, I don't want to do any of these jobs. Yeah, yeah. I'm just going to force myself to keep racing. Yeah. So I carried on racing, but then when I stopped the second time, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'll find something to do. So I stopped, or I sort of, I spoke to Neil Hodgson actually, because he's been like a bit of a life coach for me and older brother in a lot of ways. Mm. And I told him I was going to stop. And he said, well, his words of advice were, if you're thinking about stopping, then it's the time to stop because that's, it comes to us all at some yeah. point and it will, if it's now, it's now. So he said, uh, Michael Lavitt is actually putting a Moto3 team together. Maybe you could do something in that do you want me to speak to him i said well yeah I've, i'm open to ideas yeah so I'm open to jobs yeah so michael <laughs> messaged me saying oh neil said you might be interested in doing something with the team i said yeah i don't know what i could do but like i do social media and i do whatever I'm, i'll do something i'll help I'll adapt yeah like a lizard yeah like bear grills bear grills that's better better example like a lizard. <laughs> well so, lizards just adapt to any environment don't they i think yeah do they i think so what about water not very good in water. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Anyway. Right, we'll, yeah, we'll skip that one. We'll find a better one. I'm going to think now. Bokken's Bonanza. Bokken's Bonanza! Not yet, not yet, okay. not yet, not yet. So, so 
he said, I don't want to be the reason you're stopping racing. I was like, no, don't worry, I'm stopping anyway. I'm <laughs> so out. Michael's fault. Yeah. <laughs> so he said, because I don't know 100% this team's going to happen, but like if it does happen, I'll do something. So I said, cool. Didn't hear anything of it. Just sort of went about my business, finished the season, uh, had a good end to the season, all went really well. Um, and then one day he just rang me up. He's like, oh, I'm just uh, sorting the passes for next year for this team. I'm just going to put you down as team manager. And I was like, I just like went silent. And he's like, I said, uh, I don't think I'll be team manager. He went, why? I said, well, I don't know. I haven't really thought about being a team manager before. He went, well, I wasn't a team owner two weeks ago. So if I wasn't a team owner, you could be the team manager. I was like, all right. He said, we're in this together. <laughs> that's funny. That is so, literally brilliant. Yeah, that's literally how it works. That is so cool. And it was a steep learning curve. I've obviously been around racing and been around team managers all my life. So I had a good idea of what I wanted to be as a team manager. But... I was sort of new going back to MotoGP and all the people there. And it's team management, as much as it's about the team, it's also about knowing what to do if something goes wrong. Having the backup plan, having the tyres ready on the rack just in case. The yeah, I get yeah. there's so many little bits. That, as a rider, you don't need to understand. Yeah. But as a team manager, you would, yeah. That's and not just the racing side of it. Everything, especially MotoGP when you're travelling around the world. So when I first started, COVID was still very much a thing. And the first round was in Qatar. So for Qatar, you had to have... Uh, First, you had to check whether people were vaccinated. A lot of the countries were funny if you weren't vaccinated. People that weren't vaccinated had to have two PCRs, like one when they got before they took off, one when they landed. Yeah. Then we'd get to countries like Argentina, and if you tested positive when you were there, you'd get stuck there and you couldn't leave. And there was just all these sort of other things going on at the time. So not just the racing side of it um, and learning how to manage people and do that side of it, um, but also the COVID and and logistics of motorbike racing. So it was a steep learning curve, but I quickly learned a lot. And during the course of one year, I sort of went away over winter, thought about everything I did, and hopefully I feel like I've come back a better team manager this year. Team might not agree, but... Yeah, they don't. Mate, what, first of all, what you should have done, yeah, the first rule of management is delegation. So well, you should have hired a logistics manager as soon as Michael hired you. Yeah. And you just said, put old Stevie boy over here, Steve's his name, or yeah, yeah I don't know, we could... Trevor, maybe, I don't know. He's logistics manager. Bosh, there you go. Delegate. So that's one, the thing I've loved about team management is one of the people that's involved in our team is Simon Marsh. He's from a company called Vision Track. He sponsors the whole team mm. and runs a very successful business. And being part of the team management side and looking at racing from a completely different side of it, I've learned loads about business and management and all that side of it. It's been like the best apprenticeship in management and just learning how businesses work and how to deal with people. Um, and Simon's been a really good mentor for a lot of that as well. So he's um, helped me a lot of the way through it and just picking up stuff from other people, other managers. Um, I've had a lot of good advice off a lot of people. And it's um, one thing I've had to do, which took a bit of transition into, was my whole life I've always been the sort of happy-go-lucky, get on with everyone, everyone's mate. Um and as a manager, you just can't do that. There's unfortunately you've you're there to manage people, and if something's wrong, you've got to tell them. So, yeah, because you can be there, mate, and be like, oh yeah, but then they take the piss a bit, or exactly, that's exactly or it. cross yeah. the line, and it's like, mate, yeah. I don't mind this, but there's a line. Yeah. Like, come on, so yeah, stop being a parent. Exactly, and I've had to do a lot of growing up because I was. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. In, 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 yeah. 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 Uh, weirdly, going back to the racing, giving you skills that you don't realise at the time, the sort of aggression, not aggression. But the that element of racing, the sort of the bit where it comes to the last lap and it's you or them, it's like that side of it plays into the management side where you if you can't back down on something or you, you feel strongly about something, that 
inside of me, that's way easier doing that as a manager than it is letting the brakes off on Billy McConnell. Like that's a lot yeah, scarier yeah, doing yeah. that than it is doing this. So they're the parts of life that I've actually found easier because I've had such a hard, so it, it seems like a weird education for it, but it was such a hard time to go through that it's made all this sort, sort of easier. Easier, yeah, and it's mad. And obviously then you've gone from being the rider to managing riders and you know as a rider, some things can't go easy, some things can go easy. You know, this. It's, has that been hard for you as well? Like obviously then switching over and looking at the riders and being like, right, because riders are different, aren't they? At the, even in the minute, you've got two different personalities in the team, haven't you? Like, yeah. And it's it's always the same. Like, if I looked at my team last year, me and Andrew, two different personalities. If you looked at Jason and Taron, two different personalities. It's yeah. like, has that been quite difficult with, like, almost, like, I remember people saying Rob Matt was a really good team manager because of the way he dealt with the, the individual. Has yeah. that been kind of similar for you? Yeah, there's, that's definitely part of it. The... One thing I have realised is why all my team managers were stressed all the time and angry and didn't want to speak to anyone. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> the when you're racing, you just have no concept. It's not that you don't have a concept of how much things cost, but you if you crash a bike, you don't think you twice don't even want to know, it. do you? No, because yeah. it's not it's not your department. You're yeah. just there to ride the bike, and the crashes are part of racing. And I think I hope that that's a good part of my management that I would never put pressure on a rider or tell not them, crash yeah yeah don't crash because i've literally had people say don't crash before you go out yeah and it's the least helpful thing you ride ever around say. Like a knob. exactly so that <laughs> saving knee sliders yeah <laughs> the but you then have to balance that on the other side with budget and making a budget last for a season grand prix racing i i can't tell you how expensive it is it's just bonkers the amount of money you spend just to move 10 people around the earth with flights and hotels and hire cars and and missed flights and there's just so much that goes on that suddenly when someone's saying why can we not have an extra set of tires not that we ever have to do that in MotoGP yeah, because but. you get allocated but you those conversations when you're racing when you're asking for another set of tires and the team managers going oh, I'll probably do without spending an extra 300 quid you <coughs> get why that happens and but I didn't get that when I was racing. I just, what's the budgets like for like MotoGP? Because we spoke about Moto2 before, didn't we? And it's like, what's the MotoGP? 10 million pounds? Like 10 million I euros think, a year? Yeah. 12 million euros uh, a year? I think for a satellite team, that's about the 10 to 12 mark. There's no real official figures. I did do a video once on my YouTube channel. From paddock information, factory teams are like 50 million upwards. Oh, 50 million. But, uh, and like 60, 70, 80 million. It's hard to put an exact figure on it because some of their testing programs and stuff yeah, off the back yeah. of it. But and as a total budget, yeah, it's not that's cheap. Mental. And then what about like, so say you had like a like a VDS team versus the Boscoscura team, like what sort of difference in budgets would there be with that? I don't know exact figures, but where budgets sort of massively differ is um, in travel. So you could take a team around the world economy class the whole way, yeah. or you can take them business class. Some of the MotoGP teams can't even fit all their team on one flight because they have so many business class seats. So then a flight, for instance, a flight to Argentina last year might have cost three or four grand for the economy ticket to go from England to Argentina to America to home. The business class ticket is like 15 grand or 18 <sighs> grand. So suddenly when you times that by 10, 20, 30 people, that's a lot. there's a big difference. That's mad, yeah. And the hotels as well, you can stay at a hotel. What people won't see, they might know if they've been to a MotoGP race, is the MotoGP paddock gets the arse ripped out of it no matter where we go in the world. So... Indonesia is one of the cheapest countries you could go to on holiday. I've been there on holiday. It costs nothing to go. And when MotoGP goes there, it's like 800 euros to hire a hire car. And Whereas it'd be like 20 euros or 50 euros. It wouldn't even be that. No, yeah. It's like two quid for a beer, but then when MotoGP gets there, it's 10. It's, then 
the restaurants like it happens numerous times during the year. Work you get smart, there. not hard. Well, exactly. They're not stupid, <laughs> and they know that we've got to go there. Yeah, we've got exactly. no option, so we're coming. And yeah, so we get ripped off a lot everywhere we go. So hotels that are five minutes away will cost a lot more than hotels that are 20, yeah, 20 30, yeah, 40 yeah. minutes away. So yeah, it's a, uh, it's that's being Scottish. I'm quite into saving money and. <laughs> And doing that, I know the price of things. Yeah, so I quite enjoy all that and l- figuring out where we can save. Do you money love a spreadsheet? Money. I love a spreadsheet. Yeah, I don't. I'm Do you not? Them. No, I get really angry with them because like we have to do it with the office furniture, and I does my head in because I just Give so me shit a, with formulas. I have to text so many people. I spreadsheet in my spare time. I'll have to do it. I'll have to ask you. Right, mm. we're going to talk about a track review. Well, I haven't got a name for this yet. A track review. A track review. Yeah. So basically, it's your expertise. Yeah, you can say you like this track because okay. you really like the toilet block there, or. I like that track because the burgers were really good. Right. Or I like that track because I actually like the track. Okay. So the fa- your favourite track? Shall I do an international one? Any track, international. mate. Go. Your favourite track, mate, whatever it is. My favourite track's Not Kill, but I feel like it's just too basic for you to... I love Not Kill. I'll let you do Not Kill because you do love Not Kill. That's my favourite. Yeah. It's not about me, though. This is your name, this podcast. Um, let me talk about a track that's new. Well, <laughs> I would talk about Kazakhstan, but we're not going there now. No. Argentina as an event is uh was an experience the tracks okay and the facilities are okay MotoGP doesn't really go anywhere that's not okay yeah. but the <coughs> the away from the track in the town center it's called Termaster I never say it the right way around Termaster Rio Hondo I think so yeah, which yeah, is like bosh. thermal river is a thermal river basically so the whole place is on a thermal river that sounds so mega. when you go to your hotel at night there's no cold water in the tap you put shower on it's either hot or scalding hot you can't even stand under it depending and, on what the river's doing that day and the ambient temperature is hot already and it's already hot yeah. all you want is a cold shower <laughs> yeah. and the rooms are like they were built in the 1960s and the aircon barely works and we're gp does go to some absolute shitholes yeah like, there's no other way yeah they are bad some of the yeah. places we go people get really sick um the tracks and the facilities and everything is mega but it's like in lombok when you leave it's shithole yeah, yeah there's some and argentina's the because there's just not that much money in some of these places, yeah. but it's cool the place that we go to. So Argentina, there's this like um, square where all the hotels are basically. And I think over the weekend, it's one of the biggest crowds. We have like 100,000 plus people come. I couldn't imagine that. People like riding from Brazil. Oh, piss me off though, trying to go to sleep with that racket outside. Well, that's exactly it. I showed you the video before. That yeah. People just basically hold BMW S1000s on the limiter, like a brand new so S1000. So goes red. Exhaust is going red. Rory Skinner had videos of people's dashes and the bikes are like oh, 120 degrees. And I have no idea what what the concept or why they do it, but it's <laughs> Is it amazing. dick swinging, do you think? Like, look at the size of this. I think it is. The other cool one, which I've always been anti-Le Mans, mainly because the weather's bad, the hotels surrounding it aren't great, um, but this year we stayed in a really nice hotel. I don't. We just end up in a nice hotel. Um, and the campsite there is just unbelievable. It's like Mental. That is the best atmosphere and it's a cool... Next question of it is the most memorable moment in my life of either (laughs) (laughs) any any of those tracks. (laughs) Any of those tracks. Um, Oh, I will think of one. And then this follows on with favorite part of the track. I feel like I shouldn't have picked Argentina now because there's probably better tracks than this. Um, Argentina, memorable moment. Oh, we were uh, the so. Again, hire cars are so expensive. So what we actually do in Argentina is get a minibus and have a driver because it's cheaper than hiring a hire car. Yeah. It's actually cheaper to go and buy a car, which For, some people yeah. have done, and just leave it there for the year and come pick it back up the next year. It's cheaper than... Yeah. Anyway, we had a minibus and the minibus driver got to the track 
And he was all hot and bothered because loads of teams were doing this. So he's rushing to and from the airport, to and from the airport. Me and Josh Watley were sat on the bus. And in a panic, he just reversed straight into the sign <laughs> outside the track. <laughs> Dented the bus. Did um, he rip off? Yeah, he Did was he flapping. He wasn't... <laughs> He was more angry. Did he just rip off though? Did he have a look at the sign and the damage he'd done? I just ripped off. Yeah. Yes, He's top, gone. Boy. <laughs> top boy. Yeah. Top boy. Top um, boy. And what's your favourite part of that track? Pit lane. The girls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you're into Latinas. Yeah, you said there was a lot of uh, attractive women there. The women there are. It's like I'm a 30 year old bloke. It's a single bloke. 30 year old single bloke. bloke. It's a good place to go. Yeah. Steph, we're going on holiday the next year. <laughs> no. Yeah. What my I've got. I don't think his girlfriend listens. There's an Italian mechanic in our team who's basically... Don't say, don't say anything more. Just say, just tell the story. It's not in the Italian mechanic in the team. Anyway, he's got his <laughs> girlfriend convinced that Ar just in case he ever wants to go to Argentina, that it's the best place for testing. So if MotoGP ever needs to test, they'll test in Argentina. Yeah. So he's got that low-key burning in, in the background that yeah. if he ever... Or even if one day they break up, he can just move to Argentina and she won't think twice. Fact, it takes about 47 hours to get there and about six different airplanes and yeah. travel... Yeah. That's the ones I the MotoGP I hadn't got my head around until you're in it. The like one of my from Argentina to America this year took me 39 hours from leaving one hotel to the next. That is shit, isn't it? Yeah. Right, come on. I want to talk to you now about um what's your TT predictions? TT predictions. Yes. Guys, if you don't know already, you're going to have to keep checking out as well the, the channel cuz Is this going out before the TT? I don't know. Well, I'll, I'll let's, look let's, like Mystic Mac or no, I yeah, let's just do it. Yeah, let's just do it. Let's TT predictions. What do you think? What who do you think's gonna I, shine? Davy Todd's I've Yeah. I think Davy Todd, Hickman's gonna be obviously hard to beat, and even Dunlop is on form at the minute. That is but true. But then Dean Harrison is having a really, really good short circuit year. Do you wanna just name everyone in the I top six and then we need to predict. You need to choose I don't want to say Hickey or Harrison, because I feel like they're the obvious choices. I think Dunlop. I'm really going to go with Dunlop. I'm sorry, Hickman. I know you, my mate, but I'm going to go with Dunlop because I feel like he's had a really good short circuit run. He's He feels comfortable on the bike. He was really quick at in, uh, the Northwest, and I really think he's going to have a good... On the Superstock and the Superbike. Yeah. I'm going to go, go with Dunlop. You I'm go with Dunlop. But I'll even, go. I'm asking you. I'll go Davey. Only because, mm. speaking to Davey, I did an interview with him the other day, and he much prefers his bike he rides on the road. So I feel like his BSB hasn't been a real true showing of what he can do and he was fast at the northwest and okay. he also had a couple of technical problems so this is a silly one i feel oh actually no is it a silly one i don't actually think it's a silly one now um world superbike predictions a bit silly because i've yeah. bautista's hard to beat at the minute isn't he and unless although did you see top racks moving to bmw that's that mad. Is, i'm so happy about that that's quite cool actually because a lot of people would just say oh I'll just stay with yamaha let's do but i like the fact that he's gonna go no do you know what i'm gonna go against the grain here there's no secret that BMW have had some problems in World Superbikes. You know, Scott's been quite vocal about it. Obviously, you've seen loads of things in, in the press about it. Um, and yeah, to see him get on that would be quite exciting because it would be like Marquez switching from Honda, wouldn't it? Yeah. Like, that'd be exciting for everyone to watch and even for himself. I was in, I watched Taz's race in Barcelona and we saw Top Rack when talking to him. And um, he, we were sort of talking, he was sort of alluding to the fact that's what he was going to do when we were there. And he said the his main thought process is when he first moved to Yamaha, people told him he'd never win on the Yamaha. And he was like, he'd love the fact that he's then gone and won. And now if he's going to move, people are going to say, you're not going to win on that. And Motivation. Gonna, yeah. And it's cool that he was, yeah, did a good job on the Yamaha and now he's going to move to BMW and potentially if it all went well and he could get the bike where it needs to be, he could win a championship on a BMW that no one's done. So 
I respect interesting. Chopper. Yeah. I just love it. Like, I, I respect him. I like him. Yeah. I like the way he's, he's persona, even his social media is quite funny. He's quite loose and he's not a uptight. He's so nice. When as you well. meet him, yeah. He's just like, he would talk to anyone. Yeah. He's not, he's got no ego or nothing. No, no ego. Yeah. Moto um, GP predictions. Moto we'll GP. Do, we'll do Moto 2 as well and Moto 3 because we're here and we might as well. Okay. Right. Moto GP. I'm a big Binder and Miller fan. I'm going to go Binder because I just like Brad. He's doing bloody well. He's not KTM's far. What's good. the points now? I don't know what the points are, but the, points. the what I like about Brad and what I think will suit him is these sprint races because he's such he's so the good, ultimate he? racer. No matter what he does in qualifying, he'll make it happen in the sprint race. So, yeah, I think Brad. He, um, I'm looking. I'm now. I'm getting it up. We literally. I remember when I rode a pretty super teams. He rode. Remember he turned yeah. up in the big articulated lorry. And yeah. He was like, "Who's that?" And it was Brad. It was Brad, obviously, just starting out. So the points at the minute is. So it's uh, Bangnaya top, 94, Bezeki second, 93, Binder third, 81. Yeah. So that's still a good shout, isn't it? I feel it's like, such a long yeah. way to go as well. So many races. Oh, I know. And like, even Miller in eighth place. It's mainly like, going to be who doesn't get injured. Yeah. Because uh, if you have... So like in two weeks' time, we go from Mugello, Mugello, Saxon, Assen, all back to back. So if you injure yourself in Mugello... Could be like six races you miss out on in one go. Yeah. Or when we get to flyaways at the end of the year, we have ten. I think we have eight rounds in ten weeks. And so it's like if you have one big injury there, it could really mess you up. So it's not really got going properly, has it? Into the no, full flow nothing, of the no. season. So all right, so you're gonna go. Yeah, that's that's a good shout. Binder's a good shout. Martins there. He's only on eighty points, fourteen off the lead. It's consistency in it. Like Ben Nye has been winning, binning, winning, binning. Yeah. And that's um that's difficult. What about your Moto two predictions? It's hard to see past the Costa. He's just so good. Yeah. But I'm loving that Jake's fast. It's loving that Sam's fast as well this year. He's back where he needs to be. Mm. And yeah, I don't know. It's it's just hard to see past it's the Costa mental, isn't he's it? just yeah. consistent and fast. Who else has been there in Moto2? Who's been... Who's been oh, Arbelino. He's been doing really Arbelino, well. Arbelino, yeah. Yeah. Moto3. Moto3. Um, I haven't really... Oh, do you know what? I've watched the Moto3, but I don't watch it like I watch Moto2 and MotoGP, to be honest with you. It's hard predicting Moto3 because it's just a bit of a lottery and then it will depend who gets on a bit of a run towards the end of the year. Um, I don't know. There's quite a few good rookies come up this year as well. It's mm. quite good. Um, they're just outsiders to watch over. Yeah, Wade is good. Yeah. And David Alonso is another yeah. good rookie. And Jerez, he came right through. The last round he came right through. So there's, there's all the usuals that are just there every week, but I quite like looking at the rookies and seeing what they're doing. And what about BSB? You don't uh, have to say me because I'm not nowhere at the minute, mate. I'm okay. P17. I think I've got 16 points, actually. Have you? Really shit so far. <laughs> you haven't even got the showdown to rely on. You love to <laughs> no, we've got that, the showdown. But we've got like reduced points all the way through the year and then we've got like double points at the end of the year. So, so it's quite exciting. At the, end. at the end of the year, I'm basically, I'm just reserved, mate. I'm saving myself. Yeah. I've, Kyle's my mate. I can't yeah. look past Kyle. I've just told I've told Kyle about an hour ago that if I don't win all three races at Nokia, I'm retiring. And I said, imagine <laughs> I win two and retire. I'm done. <laughs> but Danny, you won two races and finished second. I'm done. All right, I'm done. Yeah, that's what I did. Yeah, yeah, I'm done. I'm out. Yeah, like, well, you, you must come back now. But why? No, I've decided. Yeah, so Kyle. Kyle, go Kyle. Good shout. Right, this is Buckens Bonanza now, mate. We're mm -hmm. into it. This is five questions that have been meticulously gone over that looked at looked through looked forward looked back looked round like this is put together mate this takes me a good 10 minutes to put together okay here we go I can't wait to get a cheesy line for that Buckham's Bonanza I don't know how the music's going to sound yet but anyway how many world titles does Mick Doohan have oh. you should know this Two. shit mate five that was, that was shit that was very bad where did your dad finish at the 1990 German Grand Prix Third. 
Boom. That's nice. You like that. What's the, what's the name of the pub at Kirk Michael part of the TT course? Kirk Michael. Oh, I don't know. I've never been in it. I sat at the church. You've definitely been in it. I you love no, a pub. I'm down the prom. <laughs> More of a night exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the, the mitre? The mitre? The mitre? I didn't know the that. The mitre. I would have got the Craig Bar and I would have got... Colours yeah. nightclub. Yeah. If you told me where the taxi will land at two o'clock in the morning, it's colours. We hit colours, I think, before. Courthouse. Yeah, wild, Completed it. wild, wild, wild. Which team won the 2022 Suzuka Eight Hour? Manufacturer will do. Uh, Honda. Which three riders? I don't know the answer. Josh to Hook. <laughs> Josh Hook. Was uh, Hookie on the HRC bike? I don't know. No. It was the HRC I'm, I'm team. Oh, was it Vieja? Is that Laquona, Vieja and the... The Jap, probably. Jap. Yeah. Um, how many corners does Silverstone GP have? 18. Bosh! Bosh! Bosh. He did. <laughs> that was a really... Was that a swerve as well? Was that lucky nah. just... That was really good. And that's it, mate. That is literally the, the podcast I'm very completed. disappointed when Mick doing answer there. I, just I know. Five. You should have maybe... Like, I, don't know. I felt like it was feel, a trick question. I don't know why. Did you feel pressured? I did. Was it the Buckins Bonanza? Uh, the Buckins Bonanza got to me. I'm, I feel like I redeemed myself with the 1990 yeah, you German did. Grand Prix. You did. That was really good. I didn't mm. know if you'd have that because you weren't even born then. No. You weren't even thought of then. I wasn't. Because that was three years before. You're 93, aren't you? When yeah. you started the year? 93, February. February, I'm April. Right, guys, that is it then, mate. Thanks what for coming about, on. We didn't do your um, 15 seconds. No, that's not. Is that's that coming in yet? now. You've just ruined that now for the future. No, I didn't say oh. what it was. Uh-huh. Oh, 15 seconds. <laughs> 15 no, that's seconds not. We're not, we're not doing that yet. Okay. You didn't hear the alarm sound because that's not. We're not. Okay, we're not now no that down yet. But um, I think we need to make this a regular feature, Racing Roundup. The Racing Roundup is coming, mate. So, guys, we are in discussions at the minute. We've not firmed up anything because Taylor thinks he's going to take the podcast into top five and that's going to make me nervous. Because if he jumps on the episode and takes it top five, then I'm shit. I'll get sacked. (laughs) It's the duo. It's the duo. But I think we should talk about, no one gets to talk about racing. Racing roundup. Talking about racing. Racing roundup. Mackenzie. You're going to have to commit to coming to London. Sounds like a porn up category. Sounds like a bukkake. Pakenzi. <laughs> anyway, we'll 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 wait for that one. But thanks for listening. Thanks for coming on, mate. No worries. It's been emotional. It's been emotional. I thought you was gonna cry at one no point. No tears. I'm hot. glad there's no tears. It is I'm hot. Sweat. I'm sweating out my eyes. <laughs> Guys, thanks for listening. Make sure you tune into the socials and obviously see the next guest. It might be better than this guest. So it will be. Might not be. We don't know. <laughs> Cheers, guys. Thank you. T Mac. Thank you. It's been emotional. Pakenzi. Boom. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.